This isn't legalization at all. It's just making cannabis less illegal. As renowned criminal defense attorney Michael Spratt put it, Bill C-45 is an unnecessarily complex piece of legislation that leaves intact the criminalization of marijuana in too many circumstances. You can't prove it, oh, oh. You got nothing legit, oh, oh. The glove don't fit, oh, oh. You gotta equip, oh, oh. I didn't smoke it, oh, oh. That's all you're gonna get, oh, oh. I'll never admit, oh, oh. I never took a hit, oh, oh. The charges won't stick, cause Monday morning I'm a brand new man. Tuesday, catch me if you can. Wednesday night. Welcome to The Docket, episode 67. My name is Michael Spratt. And my name is Emily Tammon. Hi, Emily Tammon. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Tired. Been a long week. Been a long week, but uh, I've got a kind of a girls weekend on the horizon, so I'm feeling pretty solid about that. Yeah, you've been out every night this week doing stuff. Yeah, not like out. Like you make it sound like I've just been out partying, clubbing. clubbing. You've been at the club. I mean, if you consider the Federation of Citizens Associations a club, then yes, I have been out at a club. You did return after midnight, so. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's been good. Just like wrapping up the semester. So, you know, I was teaching my students about regulatory offenses this past week, which, you know, my former bread and butter, so I get pretty excited. Are those really offenses? They're quasi-criminal offenses. Yeah, quasi-offenses. So I gave them a bunch of uh, offenses to try to classify as either absolute liability, strict liability, or full mens rea regulatory offenses. And I found some total just oddballs in the state secrets act and the <laughs> that's not a thing but just in random provincial fisheries legislation and stuff so it's a good time it's a that's good, good good time it's good um ooh, do you know what you need to call me from now on um i think i know because i know it's already going to your head it's not notorious it's not in better better renowned <laughs> renowned that's me i mean i don't know that it's you but it's certainly um, an adjective that's been used to describe you in the house of commons by a member of parliament so there's that so it's true so therefore for all time because everything that's said in question period is true it wasn't question period oh was it in committee it was no it wasn't in committee it was on third reading debate of the marijuana bill third reading debate quoting were... me quoting the renowned criminal defense lawyer and I'm, I'm disappointed to know that he didn't also uh, refer to you as a renowned podcaster. Yeah, that doesn't up my cred so much. <laughs> it does with some people. Um, yeah, so that was uh, that's fun. Yeah, good old Don Davies. He's doing some good work over there in the HOC. I'm just getting the big middle fingers of the Law Society now and put on my website that I'm a renowned defense lawyer <laughs> because they, get, they want you to back up everything. Like when I said that I was an award-winning podcaster... Like, yes. we had to link to the Claudia Award that we won. We so now I can Claudia. say that I am a renowned defense counsel. I mean, Smith, I, I don't know that one person saying it makes it true, but uh, you just go with it. I say you just go with it. It's enhanced. Everything enhanced is true. Okay. Well, I think oh. we'll be calling that into question forthwith, won't we? Um, should we just move into that? Because people are split in the feedback that I've received about wanting to hear more about us and telling us to shut the fuck up and move on to other things. Yeah, we don't need to drone on and on. We just like to warm up a little bit. Calm down to those of you that don't want want to hear about how tired we are. You know what? What you hear is what you get. 
Because I was checking the the iTunes ratings, right? And the, yeah. the rankings or, or whatever. You want to see what people are calling you to see if anyone else has referred to you as a renowned criminal defense lawyer. No, but I want to see the rankings. So it's really fun when we like beat the, you know, CBC's The House when our podcast is ranked above that. It makes me feel better about myself um, by comparing my successes to the CBC's failures. Uh, you take your, take you your know, it's uh, great. confidence where you And can so uh, I would encourage everyone to go on to iTunes or whatever podcasting thing you do um, and rate us and review us. But don't do what some guy did because we had like all five-star ratings except for one four-star rating that someone was, was upset about us calling into question the reality of uh, supernatural religion and, and Christianity. Don't pull a Julie Payette. Don't be pulling a Julie Payette right here, right now. I'm, I'm just setting myself up to be the next governor general. <laughs> so we only had one four-star rating, and we had like 128 like five-star ratings. And then someone gave us a three-star rating just Cause recently because we talked too much about ourselves. Well, you know what? That's the format of the docket. So take it or leave it. Yeah, but you know what? Ego project, my friend. Is entitled to their opinion, and if someone wants to give us a three-star rating, that's just fine. Just know that you're dead to us. Dead to us. Whoever you are. Before we move on and talk about something else, I think that uh, we should give some thanks to uh, our premier sponsor. We do have a sponsor, and I think we should acknowledge our sponsor here and now. This episode of the Docket is brought to you by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance for both defense and crown counsel, anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. And that's how you deliver a one-take reading of uh, two sentences. Very well done. Very well done indeed. That was a renowned reading. It will be once people have heard it. We'll uh, hear more about them later on. We will. You'll be reading the next one. I will. It's longer. Indeed. You better do it in one take. <laughs> I will. Um, so speaking of... Uh, Veracity of statements of the House of Commons. <laughs> I was going to say douchebags. <laughs> <laughs> I think that kind of sums up our respective approach to criticizing politicians. But anyway, carry on. Um... I really hope Peter Kent's listening to this. He's not. The honorable Peter Kent. Um, <laughs> Mr. Kent, if you will. <laughs> former. Do you want to set up what, uh, what we're about to mock? So some of you may have heard that marijuana is to be legalized uh, forthwith. Some forms of marijuana under some circumstances will be legalized. And in many others, it'll remain a criminal, criminal offense. So... Um, some of you may also have heard of the fentanyl crisis in Canada. A very serious public health emergency where thousands of individuals are dying from all backgrounds, all socioeconomic classes. A police officer in Toronto recently passed away from a fentanyl overdose. Um, this is a crisis that affects everyone, is disproportionately affecting poor and vulnerable individuals, but can affect everyone. If we had this number of people dying by any other means, um, people would be uh, springing into action. Agreed. And I mean, or to some extent. I mean, I shouldn't underplay the efforts that are being made to combat the crisis, um, but it, perhaps people wouldn't be so flippant about this crisis. That's right. I mean, some more than others, for sure. Uh, we've talked about it before on the podcast. So 
acknowledging the fentanyl crisis as probably one of the biggest public health emergencies of our time in Canada. Um, the Honorable uh, Mr. Kent of Thornhill uh, took it upon himself to make some, I would say, hyperbolic comments in the House of Commons, Commons um, where really using language that I found offensively inappropriate um, uh, the uh, this particular member of parliament uh, sought to draw comparisons between the dangers posed by children accessing marijuana and uh, likening that to the danger posed by fentanyl. I don't think any description could do the honorable uh, member justice. So let's just um, steal the audio from uh, CPAC and play that for everyone. Let's do that. Kids today will, will learn from, from one another. When it's legal, despite the, the, the age, the, the, the allowable age to consume, kids are going to harvest leaves, kids are going to experiment, and I think what we're doing, it's, it's the same as, virtually the same as putting fentanyl on a shelf uh, within reach of kids. They, having plants in the homes is just as wacky, it's just as unacceptable, it's just as dangerous for Canadian society. Yowza. I just don't even... And the thing is, I, I mean, I know that you and I both read the Vice article where he was interviewed after making those ridiculous comments. And initially, he sort of tried to double down and suggest that um, there was merit to what he had said. Later, he, I believe, used the turn of phrase rhetorical flourish or something of, like that. And, and then he said, let's just say in this article um, uh, from Vice, and we'll link to it, written by Manisha Krishnan, um, who has been fantastic on the marijuana issue. Her yeah. reporting has been uh, amazing on it. When Vice did the town hall with Trudeau on uh, marijuana issues, um, she asked some you know, very good questions. Um, this is someone who knows her, knows this file very well. Peter Kent, at the end of the interview, or at some point during the interview, said that, um, and here, let me pull it up because it's ridiculous. He said that he would um, put his journalistic credentials up against hers any day. And, I and think this is when she was calling him out for basically being dishonest in suggesting that there would be even any kind of comparison between marijuana and Yeah, he said, I, I put my journalistic reputation against yours any day of the week. Which is totally ridiculous because he wasn't making those comments as a journalist anyway. So, like, just, I don't know. I just... Can I, we just say your children are doing it all wrong if they're picking the leaves of the marijuana plant? Well, see, this is, this is like, let alone the disrespect to families that have, for example, lost people close to them as a result of fentanyl overdoses by somehow equating, you know, what they've been through to what any family could go through by having a child what wander into the backyard and like chow down a marijuana plant like I just so much of this I do obviously very much understand the government's preoccupation with edible cannabis and ensuring that if they ever do legalize it which they claim they're going to but they aren't at the moment um, that you know you would want to make sure that there were certain regulatory standards in place to ensure for example that a small child does not mistake a bag of cannabis gummies for a bag of, you know, Haribo gummy bears. Like, totally on board with that. But the idea that children are going to either eat 
marijuana plants in the yard in sufficient quantity to cause them to become ill and or die, or that they would be enticed in any way to consume uh, a dry marijuana bud. Like I do understand toddlers, little kids put all kinds of stuff in their mouth, but I would expect most small people would almost immediately spit out a dried marijuana bud upon putting it in their mouth. And if they were to consume a dried marijuana bud, I don't see them going back for a lot more and certainly not enough more that could cause them the type of harm that is, you know, that Peter Kent is suggesting. It's, I mean, if you take Kent's sort of argument to its logical, its (laughs) illogical argument to his logical conclusion, I mean, I expect some private members bills from him about outlawing, you know, red, those red berry plants that your parents always tell you not to eat. Because there's poisonous crap in everyone's garden. Like, how many times you were told as a kid, like, don't eat the red berries, don't eat certain berries. Certain ferns, certain mushrooms, and, like, nobody's suggesting... What about the bleach under your sink? Like, I mean, <laughs> this is a ridiculous hyperbolic argument that doesn't advance anything. He admits that it was, you know, for rhetorical flourish. But it does advance harmful things. That's the thing. It does. It is... And it is incredibly, as you said, disrespectful um, to those who have lost people from fentanyl overdoses... And it sets us back in, you know, the public policy and the public discussion we need to have about fentanyl because fentanyl and marijuana are in no way comparable. And it also sets us back in the dialogue we need to be having about marijuana. I mean, this is what we've talked about before. What has really, really disappointed me in the government's approach to legalization, to the extent you can call it that, is the language that they use around it. Like my recollection from the election campaign, and I could be mistaken, but was that, yes, they did have this same kind of rhetoric, which I understand around, you know, fighting organized crime and keeping marijuana out of the hands of young people. But they also talked about the harms of um, of criminalization outweighing the harm posed by consuming marijuana by kind of, you know, reasonable adults. And now they talk about it in such a way that it encourages this kind of reefer madness rhetoric that I just find mind-boggling I I really I really wish that we could just have a reasonable debate about this I mean you know we talked before about New Brunswick's regulation providing for marijuana having to be kept essentially using the same type of storage rules as firearms Quebec now is not going to be permitting any homegrown cannabis it would seem from their regulations um, on the basis of the harm or the risks I mean next thing you're not going to be allowed to have like you said certain kinds of flowers in your yard because if a child were to toddle up to it and eat the entire thing including the root it could get a stomach ache like it's ridiculous it's ridiculous and i mean i think that this sort of juvenile debate um has other harms too i mean when the government brings in time allocation and says that you know debate has collapsed and there's no reasonable discussion going on um they'll point to to comments like this to shut down debate um, when there is legitimate things to be debated in here yeah. um, from from both perspectives. Like if you are from a perspective of, you know, we need to more strictly regulate um, marijuana. We need to try to keep it out of the hands of kids. I think there are legitimate concerns that by legalizing it, by having it more around the house, maybe it will be more accessible to kids. I mean, you can have those debates and you can also say that, you know, we don't go far enough, but we're not actually having those debates. We're having to deal with, you know, garbage clown arguments like his. Yeah, and I also think it it's it plays to, like, the worst political instincts. Like, I just have so little respect for people that just sort of spoon-feed their constituents what it is that they think they want to hear, as opposed to, like you just said, you can 
raise the concerns, but you also have a responsibility to ensure that the concerns that you're raising are grounded in some kind of fact. And I remember in the 2015 election campaign, one thing that really drove me crazy that was a trend that now we've seen kind of amplified times a million in the United States, but where you can't even have a debate because you can't agree on the facts. So you you can't sort of start with any kind of shared premise from which you can actually debate a policy approach to addressing, you know, the respective concerns of the two sides, because you can't even agree on any of the underlying premises. So, I mean, I remember, for example, some of the economic debates where you have one of the parties saying we have the strongest economic record since the end of time and another one saying the economy is in the tank. And you just think like both of those things can't be true. So we should be able to have a debate about how to improve our economy. But what's the point if we can't even come to some kind of remotely like connected shared reality about what it is. And this is, that's another example is like, you know, I haven't heard of any experts testifying the committee, uh, testifying before the committee, suggesting that there's anything in cannabis that would be remotely comparable to fentanyl. And in fact, I think I read something today about the Quebec Minister of Health or Justice um, spreading what I understand to be a completely debunked myth about fentanyl being applied to marijuana. And that, like, from what I understand, Health Canada has never found no. fentanyl in any marijuana that it's tested. No. I don't know why a drug dealer would be inclined to put fentanyl in marijuana. Never go back. That's back to not that drug what dealer again. people are looking for that are smoking weed. Like, it's just... And I mean, I think the part that I think upsets me the most is Peter Kent doesn't believe that. Well, if he, he does, I mean, it goes one of two ways. He, Either he doesn't, and he's saying it to play to people's worst instincts... Or he does believe it, and that's almost even worse. He doesn't believe it. The conservatives don't believe it. And do you know how I know this? Because Julian F. Infantino is now selling marijuana, and wants to, and is in the business of marijuana distribution, mere, you know, half two years after campaigning saying marijuana was the devil, was a scourge, that Trudeau was going to legalize marijuana, was going to you know, rain down hellfire on Canada, that uh, medical marijuana should be discouraged, handing out flyers, making retu- like hyperbolic statements like that, and now he's out trying to profit on it. He wants to get aboard the gravy train. It's because I don't think that the Conservatives believe that. I don't think that they do. Um, and I think that um, they're hypocritical garbage clowns in many cases. And I, like, or as and- I would put it, the uh, their veracity is very much in question. That's how you'd say their it authenticity. <laughs> but here, like, I think that there can be concerns about youth accessing it. I think there can be concerns about um, impaired driving because of marijuana. But concerns about people dying from it, concerns you know of that sort of hyperbolic nature, aren't founded. And to the extent that they're parroted, uh, I think that you know. I think the Fantinos of the world show what what a hypocritical position this is. Shame on you, Peter Ken. Yeah. Shame on you, and Andrew that's coming, Fantino. You hypocrite. And this is coming from a renowned lawyer, <laughs> me, who's saying that. Um, can I also tell you another story about me? You please do. One of your favorite kinds of stories, I know. Can I tell you what happened today to me? It was not a short day that you had, and this I believe a... you're going to do some ranting about. What happened to you today, the legal aid system, and probably various other um, things that will actually be of interest to our listeners because they do speak to the problems with our justice system. Proceed. So I have a client 
who's in custody, who's charged with an offense. Um, I received the disclosure. He has legal aid. Things are moving um, very smoothly and rapidly. I have a meeting with the Crown. I call the Crown, a very experienced Crown. We talk about the case. Um, it's not going to resolve. It's going to trial. The Crown's calling two witnesses. I'm probably going to call two witnesses. We need to set aside three days for trial. There's no applications. There's nothing fancy or unusual about this case. Um, and we agree that we need three days for trial. Before I set three days for trial, I need to get permission from a judge to do that at a judicial pretrial. This is the local practice. And this is a practice that was instituted in the hopes that would facilitate um, trials being set for the appropriate amount of time. Right. So not too short, not too long, to avoid this wandering, the unnecessary wandering of judicial resources and or delays. Yes. This is a trial that's taking place in Perth, so outside of Ottawa. Um, which means that uh, I have to go to Perth, uh, or Smith Falls in this case, to, uh, to have this meeting with a judge to get permission to set three days of trial. We asked, my office asked, if I could do it over the telephone because it's going to be a rather short meeting. The answer was no, you have to come in person. Yeah, I, I still don't understand that. I mean... I've done them over the phone before. Uh-huh. I don't know. It's a local practice thing. Maybe because it was at Smith Falls. Maybe because it's a different judge. I don't know. So, fine. I'll go down. So I drove, it was about an hour and a bit to get down there to arrive at the crappiest courthouse in all of Ontario. Please describe it and and or post a photo because it's something else. This courthouse is in a strip mall. It is beside uh, a thrift store. And on the other side is a rent-to-own store and a giant tagger store, which is like a low-end Canadian tire, high-end dollar store sort of store. It's like a dollar store. Um, so those are what's on either side of the courthouse. And then the courthouse is above a bowling alley, down a narrow, urine-soaked, stinking hallway that's dark. Like the first time I was there, I thought I was actually in a flop house in the wrong place. <laughs> so I drive an hour and 15 minutes to get there. I arrive at 10.45. My judicial pretrial is supposed to be at 11. And then I had to wait for an hour and 45 minutes because they were delayed and they weren't on time. So I waited for an hour and 45 minutes. I walk in. I'm a little frustrated. You're feeling grumpy. And so I say, all right, Your Honor, um, we've had a counsel pretrial. We've agreed it's three days. Um, we just need to get a time estimate. And the judge says, hold up. We're going to do this properly. I've got a form to fill out. So let's do it properly. And I say, okay, Your Honor. We've had a council pretrial. There's no applications. We need a child-friendly court. The Crown's not relying on any statements my client made. I'm not bringing any charter applications. Nothing unusual. He's calling two witnesses. I'm calling two witnesses. And he's like, counsel, I told you we were doing this properly, so let's go through it. Have you had a council pretrial? <laughs> yes. Any applications you're bringing? No. no. Any applications the Crown's bringing? No. Was the Crown there? Yeah. Okay. I was just talking for him. Yeah. How many? He's done like 30 of these pretrials in a row at this point, yeah. so he doesn't want to talk. Um, is it How many witnesses is, are you calling, Mr. Crown? He's calling two. How many witnesses <laughs> are you calling? Probably two. Um, so I'm thinking, uh, counsel, that maybe three days would be appropriate. <laughs> oh, my God. So it was five minutes. I sat through that, and then I uh, drove home for and an hour and 15 minutes. I assume you got paid, like, a couple hundred dollars for your time, or? Nothing. Zero dollars. Nothing. This Nothing. is all... Like my time, my gas money, like the aggravation that those court resources, a judge, the crown. I mean, I only wish that we lived in sort of, 
a time where we had a mechanism for people to have these short meetings well, at a distance from one another. I, I, walkie-talkies? I'm that probably wouldn't go that distance. Fax machine? <laughs> the thing is because... Telephone. It's not a hearing. It's an in-chambers, relatively informal procedure. I, this is to help the court out. And who bears the cost? Not the crown who's from that jurisdiction, who's going to be there all day anyway, but the, you know, 15 defense counsel. Because yeah. there were there were when I came, there was seven other defense counsel there from Ottawa. Gosh. So I mean, if you're looking at, I mean, yes or not, me if you're listening. <laughs> or how about um, who's the minister of the environment and climate or weather? Catherine McKenna, talk to your provincial people. Well, she said she was. I know minister she of the said weather. she was the minister. I mean, talk to your provincial people. These, this is uh, look at the carbon footprint of this meeting. It's, it's, it's insane. It's like a T Rex's footprint. It Very is large. brutal. So that that's my rant for today. Thank you for sharing that with our listeners. But it's the way it is. It is. Um, before we move on to our main topic, mm-hmm. which is also about me, <laughs> um, I thought that we should just give a slight update because we talked about the case. I don't know if you remember, Emily, the case of um, Colette Dawn Stefan and David Robert Stefan. I remember it well. We had a we had a good chat about that. This is uh, a case. Uh, the Alberta Court of Appeal just released a decision, um, and I forget what episode we talked about it on. But these are the parents of a young boy named Ezekiel, um, who was born in August two thousand and ten. Um, he um, began to exhibit. Uh, Ezekiel did. Um, back in 2012, some symptoms of fever, decreased appetite, trouble breathing. And um, his parents were concerned. And rather than take him to a doctor, they decided to um, go the naturopathic route. They, as we talked about before, have a family business selling naturopathic remedies. Um, and they didn't take him to a doctor, but they treated him um, sort of sort of the natural way which, with some I leaf mean, a- a- extracts and things like that. Which... I don't have an issue with, you know, for children that have colds or viruses and you're just looking to um, alleviate symptoms of, you know, so basically untreatable conditions. Oh, at this point, they haven't done anything wrong. No, but as the symptoms started to escalate, I mean, when you read about the child being in such a condition that when they put him in the car, they can't put him in his car seat because his body is too rigid and stiff to go into a five-part It was about 10 harness. days later, right? Yeah. And his, and he hadn't returned uh, to preschool. His breathing was still bad. He was still sick. Um, they looked online for some possible, you know, diagnosis. And one of the diagnoses that came up was that it could be meningitis. And indeed, according to the checklist that they looked at, he had all the symptoms. Exactly. And... Um, so they, they treated um, those symptoms. Well, they with, concluded that it was viral meningitis. Based on the court of appeal says nothing yeah. really. Um, they treated the symptoms with apple cider vinegar, onion powder, ginger root, garlic, hot peppers, and horseradish. Things got worse. Um, his, his back began to arch. Uh, there was lethargy, weakness. Uh, they were unable to bend his, um, bend his appendages. Um, they, the wife told the husband about their concerns. They called a friend who was a nurse, um, who said, sounds like you need to get him to a doctor right away. 
Um, you know, they stayed home, and ultimately, um, there's some trouble breathing. There was a call to to nine one one, and when nine one one responded, and the doctors got there, unfortunately, the child had passed away. And so, both parents at trial were convicted of failing to provide the necessities of life. And so, uh, they appealed to the Alberta Court of Appeal um, for a number of reasons. They said that um, the Judges charged the jury wasn't fair. The judge refused to admit certain pieces of evidence. Um, too much expert evidence. Too much expert evidence, which has been a problem in Canadian courts. And that the uh, the trial took too long, that their 11B rights were, uh, were violated. And two of the three judges who heard the appeal rejected every one of those arguments. Um, I mean, one of the arguments was that they wanted the grandfather to be able to testify as like an expert parental figure about, you know, parenting, parenting and, and how, I don't know, it's interesting judgment dealing with experts, but ultimately all of the, the, the arguments were rejected and the conviction was upheld. The interesting part is that there was a dissent by one of the judges mm-hmm. on a legal point. Which means? Which means what? You're the expert here. They get an automatic right of appeal to the Supreme Court. So, I mean, I think it's going to be a, an interesting decision from the Supreme Court because it may or may not be. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really look at the dissent, like what the specific issue is. But seems weak to me. Yeah, I mean, there are a fair number of as of right appeals that don't have an enormous amount of merit, but you never know. This, who knows what the Supreme Court will do. I think it could be interesting, and I mean, one of the reasons why I want to bring it up is, you know, I'm very science-based. It was during this past episode when we, you know, I got uh, called out for, you know, calling, I think, Bible stories works of fiction. You don't need to say it a second time. We're going to get another bad What's he going to do? Rate me bad again? But I think, but the reason why I do want to bring it up is um, uh, Naomi Sayers, who's been on the podcast with us. Um, I think brought up a really good point, and that is that if you take my argument about, you know, Western science being the way that you need to go, that that could have a real impact on a lot of important Indigenous cultural practices. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that is something at the time that I didn't think of when 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 we recorded on this last time. Um, I mean, I don't... I don't think that it provides a defense necessarily to um, to failing to provide the necessities of life in a case like this. But I do think it is something that, you know, if I was counsel and I was, you know, trying to, to find a new way to look at this case before the Supreme Court, um, it might be something that I try to weave into, maybe improperly, into, into my argument. Well, and there was a case not long ago of a young Indigenous girl um, who was sick with cancer and there was a huge litigation around the hospital seeking to enforce certain treatment and they wanted to stick with traditional medicinal um, remedies and uh, it was really I mean god you would not want to be the judge in a case like that you know where you're having to make the call where when the parents on religious or cultural grounds um, want to exercise their parental rights to pursue a certain course of treatment. Well, we see it in Jehovah's Witness cases all Jehovah's the time. Witness and there's been cases to the Supreme Court about blood transfusions and Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and kids. And like, kids. I mean, it, and to my knowledge, no one in those cases is 
who is saying don't transfuse don't transfuse blood into my child and you know the hospital has to go to court to get a court order and to have the you know the child declared a ward of the state i don't think anyone in those cases has been charged with failing to provide the necessities and one thing that i was sort of wondering about is why in this case they were not charged with manslaughter like a criminal negligence causing death manslaughter or an unlawful act manslaughter through failing to provide the necessaries because there's cases like that and you have to really be concerned about the possibility of an indigenous person or a you know a racialized person um facing those more serious charges in very similar circumstances so it's um it's definitely, I mean, these are really, really, really hard cases, you know, and for people like us who do believe quite strongly in personal autonomy and, um, you know, restricting to the extent that's reasonable state interference in our daily lives and everything like that. And I just try to ask myself, how would I feel if I genuinely, sincerely felt that I was doing something that was the right thing to do for our kids? And I was being told by the government that I had to do something else. And I'm not saying that I, you know, I, I think with... They made a huge mistake here, and they're going to have to live with that for the rest of their but lives. But I don't think there's any argument. I mean, they run a naturopathic business. I don't think there's any argument that they knew that their kid was sick and about to die, but for business reasons, they were treating him one way or the no. other. Like, these are parents who love their kid and thought they were doing the best thing. And so when you're looking at putting, you know, like... It's hard in those cases when it's easy when you can say that there is like real moral guilt, right? Mm-hmm. And here there's legal guilt, but you know, these aren't people who didn't like their kid who wanted this outcome to happen. At all. And with hindsight, it's easy to say they should have known, they should have known. And like, fair enough, most of us in their shoes would have taken our kid to the doctor a long time before they did. But... Um, at the first sign of a cough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, anyway, I think these are those cases, and there's so many like it, that are just a tragedy on top of a tragedy on top of a tragedy. And, you know, on the one hand, I think it's important that parents be on notice that there are limits to, um, you know, when your kid is really, really sick, you got to take care of your kid. Your kid, a two-year-old, doesn't have the capacity to make a choice like that for himself. And um, we have to put some kind of minimum standards of parenting. But... I mean, with my students, we read a case not long ago of um, parents with a diabetic child who were told over and over again, your child needs insulin. But basically, whenever they gave him insulin, they became convinced that he'd been cured by God and stopped providing the insulin. And like, lo and behold, they're back in the hospital. And then lo and behold, the kid dies. And uh, they're hard issues, especially, you know, with the governor general saying what she said with, you know, indigenous issues that can be raised these are hard issues and you know god forbid we get into a circumcision discussion about whether you can do that to your child before they consent i mean these are touchy issues i just worry a lot and you know we've talked before about this whole kind of call out culture and labeling people you know based on one thing that they did and you know and with the anti-vaccine movement and everything it's you do have to be really careful not to further isolate and marginalize people that hold these kinds of views because we're never going to be able to reach them in that case, you know, and, and, um, by kind of just labeling them crazy or bad parents or just dismissing them as, um, you know, unwilling to listen to the truth. It's like, well, they're not going to want to listen to reason anymore after that. And, um, it's the same discussion that lots of people had about, you know, Trump's success and why Trump got elected and, mm -hmm. you know, why, you know, a whole segment of, of that population largely working class individuals who Trump isn't going to help at all. Um, 
you know, we're, we're unable to have sort of a discussion. Um, and maybe part of the reason is is because, you know, when they're leading Trump's way and they get yelled at, that causes you to double down. Well, it's a combination of being dismissed as deplorable by, you know, liberals, the, the Democrats, while at the same time having Trump telling them exactly what they want to hear. Like, it's, it's kind of straightforward when you look at it that way. So let's um, hear from our sponsor one more time before we move on to talk about uh, our main topic, me. <laughs> it has been quite a Michael Spratt-centric episode. This episode is sponsored by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series. This collection features practical texts covering various areas of criminal practice. The newest book in this series is Digital Evidence, a Practitioner's Handbook. This comprehensive resource summarizes relevant legal principles and provides practical suggestions for gathering, admitting, and presenting this type of evidence. Authors Gerald Chan and Susan Magicho, I'm sorry for the pronunciation, uh, address current and emerging challenges to clarify the nuances involved in integrating new technologies into our established court system. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the series. Just visit emond.ca slash CLS and enter code DOCKET10 at checkout. That sounds like a really helpful book, actually. Digital evidence is, is really complicated and challenging to deal with. And that only took you like five takes. That was a single take, thank you very much. And I, I do, again, want to apologize wholeheartedly to Susan Magatio. Magatio? I really, I'm going to find out how to pronounce that properly. Gerald Chan, I know, um, but that is a really challenging last name to pronounce, so I do apologize. But it's a cool book that you've written, so get on you. I know, I sort of want it. Yeah, I think we might need to invest in another couple in the series. <laughs> hey, uh, I got a connection with the, the good folks at Iman Publishing. That's right. Well, and I am teaching an advanced criminal evidence course next semester, so I do believe there could be some uh, useful things in that book for me. But on to me. Let's talk more about you, though, shall we? I think we should. We haven't talked enough about you today. No, we haven't. No. No. I've been feeling left out. Yeah, what do you want to talk about next? So, the Justice Committee. Yes, the Justice House Committee. House of Commons Justice Committee is studying the issue of jurors and their mental health after serious cases. Um, it's an issue that has come up in Ontario um, last year. Ontario announced, and very recently has begun a... a project or a program to assist jurors who experience PTSD or mental health issues uh, after serving on jury duty. And this is uh, counseling, no out-of-pocket expenses, no questions asked, available to any Ontario juror who is experiencing issues after hearing a case. And I would like to start by commending the the federal um, House of Commons uh, Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights for uh, for studying this issue because I think it is something that needs to be looked at nationally and it's something that we haven't really talked very much about uh, in 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 our courtrooms. The there's been a lot of discussions about how the justice system fails victims and quite understandably that's a preoccupation because victims come to the system already. Um, having experienced trauma and there's been lots of discussion about the multiple ways in which the system can re-traumatize people. But what has not been given as much attention over the years is the extent to which other justice system participants can be traumatized by by their um, participation in the system. And so while I think it's amazing that jurors are being considered first because these are people who do not voluntarily per se um, you know, um, 
sit on juries. I mean, they're, they're called. It's a civic duty. You don't get to choose the type of case you're called for. It's a really, really important, um, you know, exercise and democracy and everything. And so, but it's, it's, you got to do it no matter who you are, no matter what kind of exposure you've had. And you can end up, I mean, I was reading some of the stuff about the case of this guy, um, uh, that was testifying, uh, the, one of the people who's kind of brought this forward, a juror who suffers from PTSD. And I mean, the case that he sat on sounded so shocking and awful. And you've talked before about how what complicates it even more is that if you're a juror, you basically have no one to talk to about it. You don't. You can't You can't discuss the evidence. You can't discuss the deliberations. It's a crime to discuss the deliberations. So when you go home every day, you can't talk about what you think or what you saw or what you heard. And so even if you're returning home, you're sort of cut off from those supports. You're, you usually undergo, I mean, not so much in Ottawa because our juries are all government workers, which is a whole other issue, who get paid for the juror service. Um, but if you're just a normal person, you don't get paid to be on a jury. So this public workers are normal people. <laughs> well, I mean, like, come on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you're self-employed, if you're not a member of a union or don't have an employer who compensate you, and most employers don't, um, not only are you hearing all of this information that you don't deal with on a daily basis, um, you can't talk about it with your family, and you have other stresses, financial stresses, work stresses in your life that, that arise from this jury system. When you're deliberating the case, reviewing all the evidence and making what I think is probably the biggest decision a juror ever makes in their life, whether yeah. someone is guilty or innocent, you know, usually... Or guilty a, or not guilty. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, I, I know. A little correction there. My clients are innocent. What can I say? Yeah, a renowned criminal defense lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They can't take it back now. Acquittal, but, um, but I mean, when you're making that decision, um, you're sequestered from your family. Yeah. And so you don't even have your family supports to, to rely upon. And the cases that jurors hear um, in the criminal context... I mean, in the civil context, they sound super boring and dry. And I mean, like, that's you a whole trauma in and of itself. But in the criminal context, we're talking about murders and serious sexual assaults and crimes yeah. against children. Um, and you're exposed to firsthand evidence from people affected or the victims of these crimes, which is always emotional, always heart-wrenching. And you have to see autopsy photos, exhibits. I remember a case... Um, where there was the 911 call from a mother who was calling from the side of the road watching her children burn to death in a house fire. And I mean, that is something that you never hear in real life. You're never confronted with this and you'll never forget it. Um, You know, it can be incredibly gruesome and graphic. And these are experiences that, thank God, most people um, don't don't ever have to confront. Yeah. We don't do any screening for jurors to make sure they're mentally tough enough. We don't ask questions. And and who is mentally tough enough? I mean, that's the other thing is... No, and and, would you ever choose a juror that was like, no problem, yeah, autopsy exactly, photos, exactly. I could totally handle it. I mean, more of a red flag. But I think also, um, you know, it's really important to underscore the fact that the jurors are not the only people who see those images. They're not the only people who hear that audio. So let's bring it back to me. Well, I was thinking more along the lines of, like, the court clerk. That no, well, no. this is, so, so I mean, um, how, what brings us to talking about this today is when this was announced, I, um, I tweeted a, a couple things and started a bit of a discussion on Twitter, um, and then did a bunch of media with CBC, 
um, a show here, uh, the local show here in Ottawa and, and a couple places across uh, Ontario talking about this issue that I think resonated with a lot of people um, because one of the points I made was there are lots of people in the courtroom, um, court clerks and court reporters, as you pointed out, um, court attendants, um, and a lot of these individuals um, are contract workers, don't have like strong union support, can't necessarily take time off or ask for help, can't say no to a case, mm-hmm. um, you know. So I think that these are people that can be incredibly affected as well. And then I also talked specifically about judges, crowns, and defense counsel. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I was tweeting, I was telling uh, about this summer. I don't know if we talked about it in any other podcasts. Maybe we I did when I was in, in the midst of it. But I did six back-to-back sex assault trials. Um, some were in Superior Court, some were in Ontario Court, some were historic offenses, some were recent offenses, some were against children, um, some were against adults. Some, the defense was the complainant is lying and it never happened. Some is um, the complainant maybe believes it happened, but it happened so long ago that the memory is not reliable and it didn't happen. This, these are false memories. Um, and I mean, in, it was a period of professional success for me because I, I was, my clients were found not guilty in each of those cases. But sort of towards the end of this run, I remember sitting around thinking, I don't want to go into court next week and make another person cry because you have to ask these very tough questions. Yeah, and you're not someone who badgers witnesses, or but it's just nobody wants to be nobody wants to talk about it. No, and my style is is not confrontational at all. I mean, if a witness pushes, I'll push back. Um, And I I think that happened maybe in one one case where you know the cross examination got a bit heated, but not not from my doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think that 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 is a productive way at all, but there are certain obligations you have as a defense lawyer. If your client is going to testify to an opposite version, is they're going to contradict the complainant, there's a specific rule. It's called the rule in Brown and Dunn, a case of Brown v. Dunn. Um, and it's a rule of basic fairness that is developed. And if you're going to... It's basically, in a nutshell, if you're going to call a witness a liar, you have to... In your submissions. In your submissions, or your client's going to have contrary evidence, you have to give them a chance to respond to that. Um, and you have to confront them with that um, and I use the word confront not in a confrontational word but you have to give them a chance to, to answer them. you have to put it to them you have to if you're going to call them a liar behind their back in your submissions you have to give them a chance to answer it and you have to to you know put it to them that that's what you're going to say at the end of the day and it's a hard thing to do it's a hard thing to do it always is met with tears or shock or you know whether you're lying or not lying um, these are always very emotional and, and I didn't want to go to court and do that again and I was feeling slightly depressed and I'm not like a person to get depressed about cases at all I was feeling like slightly off um, and I was thinking I didn't know why and then I realized that like I'm in the middle of all these cases and part of the problem with our profession in general is it wasn't the first thing <laughs> that I me- that I thought of when I said th- why am I feeling a bit off it wasn't the first thing that I thought yeah, of like, that, oh it's probably my stress from work it, you, yeah no I it's like maybe it's things aren't maybe the kids and I aren't getting along maybe mm-hmm. I'm not exercising enough maybe this maybe that oh maybe it's because I've done six <laughs> back-to-back sexual assault trials and I've had to deal with this yeah And I think, I mean, we may have talked about this in a previous episode, but I just, what really stuck with me was um, a couple of years ago when a forensic psychiatrist from the Royal Ottawa Hospital went public with his own experiences with 
post-traumatic stress disorder. This is a, a doctor who has seen the Bernardo tapes. He's seen the Russell Williams tapes. You know, like basically has um, evaluated some of the most notorious uh, gruesome murderers um, in Ontario um, in our time. And, you know, these are professional people. They have a job to do. They're, they're looking at the evidence with a very particular lens, which can sometimes um, act as a bit of a buffer, an emotional buffer. But he said that just, you know, one day he was driving home or driving to his office and he had to pull his car over on the side of the road and just sob uncontrollably. And it was kind of the same thing. He was just completely overcome. And um, he really started a conversation that I think was much needed among police officers and lawyers, you know, prosecutors, defense lawyers, that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we're prioritizing jurors right now because of their very, <laughs> I don't know what that was. It was, I was just pulling up the article. Um, it's from 2013. We'll post a link for it. But it's okay. Dr. Bradford, who um, is a world-renowned um, forensic psychologist. Uh, but he dealt with the Russell Williams case, the Picton case, yeah. watched the Bernardo um, he's testified for both the Crown and the defense. I mean, he's seen it all. Um, Literally, because a lot of these things have been videotaped or at least aren't seen or scene. sealed or aren't even shown sometimes in the court. Yeah, in the Bernardo case, the, juror, the jury did not have to see the videos. So, and I mean, and this is someone who is in the mental health field. I mean, he works at the Royal Ottawa Hospital, which is a world-renowned, you know, psychiatric institution. Um, so you're right, I mean these things can sneak up on you. And all these people, in one way or another, are doing some form of public service. So I think it's really important. And I hope there's more research being done. Um, You know, just for example, drug and alcohol addiction is very high in our profession, um, in policing. Um, It's the the rate of mental health issues. Uh, And I mean, there is... For lawyers, there is um, some assistance provided by the Law Society, Um, but historically that's been a problem because the Law Society regulates your professional competence. And so there's been, an, there's been a reluctance by lawyers to go to the law society that regulates the professional competence and say, I have a professional problem with what I'm seeing in court. I have mental health issues. You mean, it's hard for that law society to, to do those two jobs at the same yeah. time. And there has been some decoupling of that, which is good. But in speaking about defense lawyers particularly, um, you're right. I mean, if we're looking at lawyers in general, the law society, through some studies that have been done, have found that you know it's almost three and a half times the rate of mental health issues in um, the legal profession as opposed to the general public. And um, there's some estimates that say about 20% of, of lawyers experience mental health or addiction issues. Um, and I think the problem is even more acute in the defense bar for a number of reasons. Um, the first reason is there's no such thing as um, counseling without any out-of-pocket expense when you're a defense lawyer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're a small business owner. If you turn away a hard case because you've done a number of them, um, that's time that you're not going to be in court. That's money that you're not making, you know, food you can't put on the table. And for every hour you take out of your practice to go seek help is an hour that you're not working. There's also sort of a reluctance to talk about these things in the defense bar because we're supposed to be tough. We're supposed to not show any weakness. I mean, I felt awkward talking about it because I'm like, what if you're, what if I'm representing you currently on a sex assault charge and you hear me saying these things, you might not have confidence in my ability to to represent you. I do, if you're listening. (laughs) Um, But then I think 
for the defense bar specifically, it goes a bit farther than that. Um, unlike Crown Attorneys um, and unlike many judges, we're often very isolated by nature of how our businesses are set up. We're not part of large firms. We don't have unions that represent us. Um, Lots of criminal defense lawyers don't even have colleagues. Yeah, you and especially especially if you're working in remote or isolated communities, um, there's a lot of driving back and forth. There's a lot of time that you spend alone thinking about cases, a lot of late nights working by yourself, um, and that's an issue. And, I mean, you're right that... Um, first responders, doctors, police officers, um, they all deal with similar things. I don't know any doctor, ER doctor, who's been at a party who um, tells everyone what they do for a living and the people at the party say, how can you live with yourself defending people that are guilty? How can you do what you do? I mean, there is a certain way that members of the public look at defense counsel. Yeah, even um, when you We're not say, held up like doctors are on, a, on some sort of pedestal. No, and when you say, I had a really hard summer because I had six sex assaults in a row, there are going to be people listening who judge you for that or who make assumptions about the type of person or the type of lawyer you are for having done that. And I mean, and the other issue is we're human, right? And so there, it's unlike the Crown who is doing their job, they're allowed to believe all survivors. I mean, they have to think they have a reasonable prospect of conviction. They have to, to some extent, believe their witnesses. Um, As a human, I default to believing all survivors. If a friend, you know, someone who lives on our street, a family member says that they were sexually assaulted, I would believe them without any question. I wouldn't say, you know, well, it's presumed innocent, like I'll have to wait till I see what the court says. Um, if someone comes and is crying about a traumatic experience, I mean, it's a natural human emotion to, I think, to sympathize with that person, to feel some empathy for that person. Um, and especially in sexual assault cases where, you know, especially if they're historic sexual assault cases, a lot of times your submissions are, you know, it's not that they're lying. It's just that the evidence isn't reliable due to the passage of time or due to this factor or that factor. And so when you were cross-examining, um, you know, uh, a sexual assault complainant, there's that tension between, you know, the human instinct to feel empathy and also your professional obligation to, you know, provide your client with a, with a vigorous defense to ask those hard questions and to insist that those legal standards are met. Um, and that tension, I think, also, you know, is something particular that defense counsel experience that, you know, other participants in the justice system may not. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I I think it's just a really important conversation to be having. And I mean, I really look forward to seeing what comes out of it. I was talking to my dad about the the jury issue, and he's a former deputy attorney general for Ontario. And he was saying when he was deputy AG, there was a program for um, exactly this type of thing for jurors, but it was a discretionary program. So it basically had to be approved at a really, really senior level if it was sought by a juror. But he was a little bit... um, distraught to hear that there seemed to be today a void. And I think, you know, that's another thing that comes from uh, decades of austerity and and cuts to the, in particular, justice system. Um, So, you know, let's hope that uh, we can start making some progress here so that the justice system can continue to do what it does, that members of the public can feel that they can step forward to do their civic duty, but they're not going to just be tossed aside afterwards and that everyone else um, you know, has some kind of recourse or some kind of somewhere to turn um, and they're left 
you know, alone to deal with, with their pain. So, and I think another important thing is, and I mean, this sounds self-serving, um, but I say this in the context of every other argument I make is against my own interest. When I say, you know, legalize marijuana, when I say no minimum sentences, when I say take things out of the criminal code, out of your professional, that is against my professional interest. Um, so I, I hope that that somehow uh, mutes the self-interested nature of this comment, but there needs to be a robust legal aid funding so that defense lawyers can take time off between cases so that we can be paid adequately for these hard cases um, at a rate commensurate with the judge and the crown who's in the courtroom because it's a necessary burden. And I think that when you, uh, especially to sole practitioners who don't have the support, when you underpay um, to the extent that that is done at legal aid, um, which requires people to work long hours, to work late at night, to you know, be alone, be isolated, work hard, not get any sleep, um, and do back-to-back case uh, simply to to make ends meet. I think that that can lead to problems as well, and I think that's another manifestation of decades of underfunding. Agreed. So that's cheery. Yeah. On that uplifting note, uh, no, I mean it's being looked at. Progress is being made. And, um, you know, as long as people keep talking about it and looking for solutions, then we can, we can, we can end on a positive note. But Peter Kent, eh? What a... What a... What a Peter Kent. He pulled a Peter Kent today. Here yesterday. Oh, Peter Kent. Um, a well-respected newscaster. Former. Voice of authority. Oh, God. So that's about it, eh? I think that's it for this one. Fire's burning down. Fire's burning down. Got to shut her down. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I think we'll be um, more cheery next time. I hope so. We'll talk about The Room. Ooh, which I am seeing. I have my tickets to go mm-hmm. see The Room. It's playing uh, at the end of November at the Mayfair Theatre. Um, Greg Sestero is coming, one of the actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's confirmed. Um, but we're not going to that. We're going to the d- December 1st showing at the Mayfair Theatre. So if you're in Ottawa, join us there. Um, to see the 100th consecutive month of The Room goodness. In case anyone misunderstood that last comment, when he said we, he was not referring to myself. Uh, I will not be attending The Room, but uh, Mike and some of his chums will be going to see it, and I don't believe any of them will be seeing it for the first time. Nope, we're going to be bringing our plastic spoons. Enjoy. I will. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman and you can follow me on Twitter at M Spratt. Thanks for listening.